It's from Genesis chapter 49, verse 29, and then after that, you go to 50, you go to Genesis chapter 50, verse 26. So if you don't know where um, that is, you can find it in the Bible if you're not sure where you're going. Brilliant. Cheers, Rory. If you grab that mic up there, mate. So yeah, we're starting at verse, uh, chapter 49, verse 29, and then going through to chapter 50, verse whatever Rory said. Thank you, Rory. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave, in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre and Canaan, of Canaan, which Abraham brought along with the field, as a burial place from Ephron, the Hittite. There, Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There, Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were brought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of a town near the Jordan, they lamented lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father when the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of a town. They said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That's why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had brought along with the field as a place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When, they, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. 
I will provide you, I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. He also saw the children of Micah, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take up take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thanks very much, Rory. And that was, a, I think that deserves a round of applause. That... That is a doozy of a reading to get through. Well done, mate. No, fantastic. Good job. Matt, why don't you join me up here? Um, this, is, this is Matt. He worships here. He'll introduce himself. He always does at the start of every talk he ever does, so I won't steal his thunder. Let me pray for you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Matt. Thank you so much that you have brought him here to this place. But Lord God, we we pray that we would hear from you tonight. Thank you that you have been speaking to him this week through this passage. And I pray now that he would be listening to your spirit. I pray, Lord God, that he would be at one with you and your mouthpiece. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm Matt, and I always introduce myself before I start. (laughs) If you could flip the next screen up, please. I love it when a plan comes together. Don't you? I'm sure you've planned different things at times, whether that's planning a wedding, which can take months, years sometimes to plan nowadays. Or, or maybe it's been a work project that you've had to plan. Or, or something at school. Something at school like, like you're, you're doing a play. I'm sure there's like Christmas plays and all, all that going on. And when it all comes together, it's fantastic, isn't it? Something that we've done quite a lot in our family over the years is, uh, is a football party in our back garden. Some of you have probably been along to some of those parties in the Euros or the World Cup. Obviously, we couldn't do it this last year. Uh, but, but we plan it over, over a number of weeks, and uh, we, we get the food right, um, might brew a little bit of beer for some of those who are interested in that. We put a big screen up in the back garden, and, and I get someone to come round who's into the technology. They come around the week before, and we check that when, when the sun is shining, it's not going to reflect back. I mean, it's a lot of planning, but it comes that moment when we've got about 100 people in the back garden for me, it's normally at half-time, because by half-time, I know it's kind of all working out all right. And there's a bit of a, yes, I love it. It's all come together. Unfortunately, I'm not responsible for the result, and we've watched a few losses of England over those years. But that's not the point. It's when the plan comes together. And here we are this evening at the end of the plan of Joseph's life. Now, some of us here have journeyed all the way through that over the last, I don't know how many weeks we've been looking at it. And we've gone through right from when Joseph was 17, right up to the end of his life. When he dies, can anybody remember? There's a little test. 
Yeah, okay, go on. How old was he? 110, well done. You listened to Rory. I think that deserves a round of applause. I bet most of the adults here didn't remember he was 110. Yeah, well done. So we've come to the end of that story. And and in that passage, and it was brilliantly read out, thanks so much for that, Rory. There's loads in there, and I haven't got time to go into all the details, but you've you've got Jacob's death and all the mourning that goes on and then how Jacob then gets taken off to where he's buried and then you've got Joseph's death as well at the at the age of 110 i want to concentrate though just on those verses that are in there verses between 15 and 21 the bit when Joseph's brothers come along and they have this conversation with Joseph where they come to him and say look before before dad died he said basically you had to forgive us for all the rubbish that we've done to you now there's no evidence actually in scripture that, that Jacob actually said that to the, to the brothers. So they're probably making that bit up. But you can't blame them, can't, can you? I mean, they did treat Joseph pretty badly. And I think there's some genuine kind of remorse or repentance there in their lives. And so they come along and they say that to Joseph, look, you know, forgive us. And Joseph's response is, he weeps. I think he weeps because... He's already forgiven them. Haven't they picked up on that yet? The way that he's looked after them and cared for them over those years. And then he comes out with what for me is is the crux of the whole story, where the whole plan comes together. And it's this verse that I want to concentrate on this evening. Joseph looks into his brother's eyes and he says this, You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I suggest that's a verse that's worth memorizing. Memorizing, even putting up on the wall at home. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We're going to go big picture little picture tonight. We're going to soar up to 30,000 feet and look at the big picture of God and what God does in people's lives and our lives. And then we're going to swoop down, right down here, to the minutiae of our lives. Because I think it's all in this verse and all in this passage that we're looking at. Let's think about Joseph's life, or or, or Joe as I like to refer to him at. Let's, let's, Let's think about Joe's life. At 17, 17, he has those dreams. Is there anybody here who's still in their teens? Yeah. How old are you, Rory? 14. I know there's some at the back if they're awake. How old are you boys at the back? Pardon? 15. There's only 16 there. So Joseph is 17 when he has these dreams. You know the dreams, the dreams that he sees, and you've seen Joseph, the amazing Technicolor dream coat, some of you, of, of sheaves bowing down and sun and moon bowing down. And what does Joseph do with that? Well, rather than keeping it to himself, the precocious 17-year-old that he is goes and tells his brothers, guess what? I've seen a dream where you all bow down to me. Well, they're already not, pretty, not very keen on him anyway because he's got this lovely coat to wear. And so what do they plan to do? They plan to get rid of him. You know the story. We've been there over the last few weeks. He goes, gets thrown down a well. At the start, they want to kill him, and then they think, no, we won't kill him, but we can make some money out of this. We'll pretend he's dead. 
and we'll make some money out of it. So they sell him and he goes off into slavery in Egypt, doesn't he? And then it starts all right there, and he gets in with Potiphar, and he's he's a slave there, but Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, likes him, and it's all going well until something goes on between Potiphar's wife and and Joseph, and she says that he's coming on to him. It's actually the other way around, but then he gets thrown into prison. He gets thrown into prison. There's some more dreams of the the butler or the cupbearer and the baker. They have some dreams. He interprets them, and he says, look, when you're up there, just remind, remind that, you know, I'm down here still, but of course they forget. And two years later, then Pharaoh has some dreams, and suddenly the butler remembers that he's had some dreams interpreted. Joseph's the man you want. And so up he comes out of prison, interprets those dreams, or rather God interprets the dreams, and then becomes prime minister. Becomes prime minister at a time of abundance, and then of famine, seven years of each, And then this verse comes true. You intended to harm me, brothers. If you can put the next bit up. Next slide. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Literally thousands of lives are saved in Egypt and around because of how God uses Joseph. In fact, not just thousands of lives in Egypt, but he's looking at the brothers who he's forgiven. Their lives have been saved because what they intended for harm, God intended for good. And so there's big picture stuff here, the saving of many lives, and there's little picture stuff here. How Joseph is used as a 17-year-old up to the age he is now to be a part of God's plan. Big picture, little picture. But let's push that picture a little bit bigger because this is actually part of what we call salvation history. In other words, the history, the story of salvation getting rolled out through time. If we were able to just flip over a page and had time to read it, and we're not, we're going to be getting into looking towards Christmas in the next few weeks. We get into Exodus. Exodus, some 350 years after this end of Joseph's story, is when Moses comes on the scene. And this is when the next stage starts to happen. Joseph had been responsible for getting his brothers over there. Now Moses is responsible for taking them into the promised land. Does Joseph know anything about that? He's died 350 years before it. Although, as Rory read out to us, there's a hint there, isn't there? He knows that the promised land is part of his destiny as well, because he says, when you get into that special land, come back for my bones. I know I've been buried here, but take me over there, because that's where I belong to be as well. Part of salvation history, working out through Joseph's life, but looking forward as Moses then takes it on the next step. Let's jump forward then, 1,800 years from Joseph. There have been lots of wars. There's been lots of mess going on in people's lives. There's been what they call the exile, where the people of Israel get it wrong again, and they get thrown out of the promised land, and then they come back again. And now we're in AD 0 or BC 0, call it what you want. And Jesus steps into the picture, a time of 
Roman occupation there in the Promised Land. I don't know if you've noticed throughout this series, and you can see it in the right-hand corner there. It says Joseph, the hidden hand of God. But the last letter, H, is not an H, is it, actually? It's a cross. In fact, I keep looking at it throughout this series, and I don't see Joseph. I see Giuseppe Cross. You have to say that in Italian. That was supposed to be Italian. Giuseppe Cross. That's what it looks like to me. I'm sure that's deliberate. It is deliberate, isn't it, Eddie? That wasn't a mistake. Because Joseph's story, Moses' story, the salvation story doesn't finish with Joseph or Moses or when they they arrive in the promised land. It looks towards the cross. So come to that verse again. And now listen to that verse on the lips of Jesus. Look at it. Say it to yourselves before I then say it again out loud. And imagine Jesus speaking that verse. As Jesus is on the cross, he looks out from the cross and says, you intended to harm me. To the Pharisees that were always trying to trip Jesus up. To the religious leaders who were wound up by the fact that he kept healing and doing good things on the Sabbath. You intended to harm me. To Pilate, who tried to wash his hands of Jesus, but sent him off to be beaten before sending him to the cross. To the devil, who was there in the wilderness at the temptations of Jesus, and then it says in one account, I think it's Luke's, He left Jesus for a more opportune time. The devil would have been around there at the cross. And Jesus is saying, you intended to harm me. To the crowd, baying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus says, you intended to harm me. And let's face it, to us... If I was around in those days, I think it's unlikely I would have been like Mary, who was still there at the foot of the cross as Jesus was crucified. I think I probably would have been one of the crowd joining in. At best, I might have been one of the disciples who fled in fear of my life that I might be next. You intended to harm me. And then what? First time I preached, I wasn't much older than Joseph. I preached down at, or one of the first times, first time at a beach mission, I preached down at Sidmouth. And uh, I really went for it. I really, really went for it. And I went on and on about the cross. And I remember looking out and telling everybody, and I was going into all the intricate details. And I really laid it on really thick about the cross. I thought I'd done a fantastic job. And I finished preaching and I sat down, not exhausted because I was only 17, but really kind of buzzing. And I turned to, it was Stan Gain who was leading it. Some of you know, Stan went to glory about five or six weeks ago now. And I turned to Stan and I was really excited because I'd really nailed it. And I said, "Ah, that was all right, wasn't it? And he went, yeah, it was all right. 
I thought it was better than that, Stan. Come on. Except you left Jesus on the cross. And I went, did I? He said, yeah, you, you just forgot the resurrection. He was ever so gracious. I'd only forgot the best bit. I'd only forgot like the, the punchline. I don't know if you know, there was a famous, fantastic preacher, African-American preacher called S.M. Lockridge, about a hundred odd years ago. Preached this sermon which, which went along the lines of, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, and all of the sin, and all of the wickedness, and all of the wars, and all of the hatred, and all of the pain, and all of the COVID is being thrown at me. But Sunday's coming. The resurrection is coming. In fact, for us, the resurrection has happened. We live this side of the resurrection, don't we? We live in the light of the resurrection. You see, what you intended to harm me, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that's why we're here today, isn't it? Because we are part of the many lives. You see, this is the big picture, salvation, history, down into the minutiae. I know I've said this so many times before, but I'm still going to say it again. I was sitting about where you are, Jamie, maybe the next row back, when we used to have those pews that used to have that funny kind of carpet stuff on that you could pick it when you were in the boys' brigade and flick it around. That's what we mainly did in those days. However, there was someone preaching here when I was about eight years old, and it was at that point something he said connected with me. I encountered this message for the first time and I remember going home that night as an eight-year-old and asking Jesus into my heart or whatever language you want to use. Every time I preach now, I keep remembering that. Forty-something years ago. That's the minutiae of the big picture salvation history. And I don't know where you're sitting today, whatever age you are today, whether you're eight or 80. But this triumph of Jesus, this God turning it for good, is there for us today. Is there for you today to take hold of in your heart today. You can do it here tonight. You can go home and pray in your bed tonight. But just turn to Jesus today. Turn to him today with all the stuff that's going on out there in the world at the moment and all the fears and all the anxieties and say, there may be a lot of harm going on, but God, I need you. I want you. This can only come by revelation. It only comes by Jesus encountering us in our hearts. But he's here by his spirit today for each and every one of us. And maybe for the first time tonight, you want to encounter Jesus. Because he wants good for your life. But you may say to me, yeah, I've done, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. What else? And this is also the big picture, small picture stuff. Underneath Giuseppe Cross, 
It says the hidden hand of God. There's a lot of theology in this verse, but we haven't just, or I haven't just cherry-picked this verse. This runs throughout the Bible. God's what we call sovereignty, his overall rule and reign in life and in our lives. God's providence is another way of putting it, his, his, his plans, his purposes for our lives individually. That's why I said this is a verse worth memorizing because it can become your verse as well. That God intends plans and purposes for your life in the same way that he did for Joseph. I said I'm not cherry-picking verses. Here's a couple that underline this. And you keep finding these throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 29.11 is a very well-known verse. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, I know that that was spoken by Jeremiah at the time of the exile, the period I referred to earlier. So I know, just like with Joseph, it's got a particular moment in history that it's relevant to and a particular group of people that it's relevant to. However, big picture, salvation history stuff, but it's still relevant down in the nitty-gritty of who you and I are today. Because if you're a Christian, if you've turned to Jesus... He's got plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Helen and I have got a little um, picture frame at home that Helen's dad gave us, I think it was, after we had been on sabbatical some 15, 16 years ago. And there's a picture of the two of us together, me with hair, and Helen looking just as beautiful as she's always looked. And then underneath it says, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. I have got a good friend who's a former footballer. This is his life verse. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and give you a future. I know a current footballer who's got Jeremiah 29, 11 tattooed on his arm. I don't know if you're into tattoos, but if you're going to get tattooed, nothing better than getting tattooed with scripture. My point is, you see, yes, it had an original context in the exile, but it's been owned by Christians ever since because there's a theological truth in that for every one of us. Jump to the New Testament with the next scripture. This is my final one. Romans 8, 28. So this is Paul now, of course, writing to the church in Rome. Paul, who had been breathing out murderous threats, who himself was intending to do harm to Christians, Paul, after he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, writes this to the church in Rome. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's there back in Joseph's time. It's there in the time of the exile. It's there in the New Testament church that God has plans for us to turn things for good wherever our lives are at, whatever's going on, he's still in control. He's still the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's still sovereign over COVID and Brexit and everything that's, and the climate change and all of that. He hasn't got off the throne. He's still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's still got these plans for us as individuals and for the world. 
my life is a life that is full of two things, really. Mystery and mess, if I'm honest. Mystery, because things seem to happen every day that I don't really understand. I don't know about you. Whether it's on a big scale, if I look in the newspapers, or whether it's another phone call from a son at university. I can't work it all out. And sometimes it's a mess. Sometimes it's a mess because of the things that I've done or a mess because of the things that others have done. And it's hard work at times. But in there, this truth prevails. And let me say this just as we come to a close. When Joseph says, if we can put that final verse up again, When Joseph says this to his brothers, he's saying it when reflecting on his own life, not as an examination point for his brothers. So what I mean is this, sometimes, and I may have done it in the past, and you may have it done to you in the past, sometimes, when I've been going through a difficult time or someone else has, they've come along and said, oh, well, don't worry. We know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him. So you'll be all right, Jamie. 10 out of 10 for theology. Zero out of 10 for pastoral care, I would suggest. Because actually, it's not what we want to hear at that point. We just want someone to sit alongside and say, yeah, it's pretty tough at the moment, isn't it? But let me sit here with you. When Joseph was 17 and he was down the bottom of a well thinking he was going to be killed, can you imagine if once someone just leant over and said, don't worry, it'll work out all right. God's with you. Bye. And the timing of when Joseph said this as well. The very next bit, again, that Rory read out and we got the answer. Joseph is 110 when he dies. Now, we don't know exactly how long before he was 110 that this was said, but it's after Jacob's death, obviously. You can do the maths. I tried doing it by looking in and adding up how many years he was here, there, and everywhere, and I ended up looking at commentaries, and I got two answers. He might have been somewhere in his late 50s, or he might have been 70-odd. But it doesn't really matter. Wherever it is, he was not a 17-year-old. In fact, he was older than I am now, and was looking back on his life, And this truth had now become a revelation to him. Theology is always biographical. What I mean by that is it's always worked out in the lives of the saints in the Bible and in our lives as well. They're not just truths that we throw around at one another, but they come to us by revelation in our lives as we live it out in the mess and in the mystery. Young people, when I was 11, when I was interviewed for my school, some of you would have been interviewed for school, I guess, and I'd done the examination, and I was interviewed by the headmaster, and he said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer was, an answer that some of you might have thought as well, I want to be a professional footballer when I grow up. Now, I knew nothing in those days about um, interview technique, Because if I'd done any research, I would have discovered that this was a rugby-playing school and they didn't like football very much. But I just told the truth. I want to be a footballer. Well, 
I got into the school. And then at the age of 15, I loved playing football. I couldn't get enough of it. I'd play football five, six, seven times a week as much as possible. Three games a weekend. I was always playing football. And then at the age of 15, I damaged my knee and damaged the cartilage. At the age of 16, I had my first knee operation. At the age of 21, the second operation. At 23, the third operation. And I had another one a couple of years ago. Now, I'm not saying if I had not damaged my knee, I would have been a professional footballer. I don't know. I mean, probably, because I was pretty good. But I tell you what, when I was 15 or 16 years old, as a Christian, because you've already heard that bit, I was broken-hearted. My dreams had just gone crushing down because I wanted to be a footballer. That's what I was going to do. And now that was just disintegrating. I genuinely mean this. I would rather be the person I am today, involved in what I'm in today, interestingly involved in sport, overseeing Champions League throughout football and English sport, than being a professional footballer. And I genuinely believe that had I gone down that route, even if it was possible, I wouldn't have ended up doing what I'm doing today. Something that had harmed me, God had turned to good. Now, I know that's my life, and all of our lives are different, but it's the same point, isn't it? That stuff will come our way, that will try to chuck us backwards, that will feel like the end of everything. Just like with Joseph. The dreams and the visions, and there's a whole preach in holding on to our dreams and visions. Maybe that's for another time. And there's some discipleship in that. But I think the better discipleship is where Joseph gets. Is that the dreams and the visions that he had, he lets go of. I don't believe he's holding on to those in the well or in the prison. That's another level of discipleship when you just hold on to God, not because of the dreams and the visions, but in spite of the dreams and the visions. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is salvation history, but this is also the mess and mystery of our lives as well. And I encourage us, wherever we're at tonight, in a moment as we reflect, to take hold of that truth for our lives and to take hold of what God wants to do in us. I love it when a plan comes together. Amen. Thanks very much, Matt. We're going to sing together in a moment, but the, uh, Matt mentioned that we're going to reflect um, as we sing as well. Head, heart, hands. That's the journey this evening. As you sing, has God spoken to your head? Have you gained knowledge of him tonight or knowledge of something else? Has he spoken to your heart? Has he given you a new conviction tonight? Has he motivated you in a different way? Or has he just simply told you to do something? Do you leave here tonight knowing what you must do in whatever situation you are in? Keep listening. Keep speaking to him. Keep reflecting. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you do speak. 
We want to do business with you, Father, before we go. We're close to leaving now. Lord God, speak. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.